Hey, this is Brian Koppelman. And this is David Levine. And we are here with Behind the Billions. Behind the Billions. Seamless, D. We did that seamlessly. Uh, we are the showrunners and co-creators of Billions, and we'll be here each Sunday night after the show to talk about the episode. We have the great Corey Stoll coming up at the end, who plays Michael Thomas Aquinas Prince. And uh, there's a big episode for Prince, D, don't you think? It is. It's a, it's a heavy episode. I mean, thinking about where this episode came from, you know, as we've sort of paid attention to this little mini class of billionaires, I mean, we've always been fascinated by this idea of, of like what they call the Davos man, Davos being one of these, um, sort of insular little get togethers for the people who run the world. And these, these guys fashioning themselves as sort of thought leaders, you know, and, you know, there's salt out in uh, the desert of Las Vegas. And then in the world of billions, there's the Mike named after Mike Prince. And one of the things that cracks me up about these things is when we've gone to them, you can see people sitting in the audience with laptops and with, with Wi-Fi's literally trading stocks based on what these billionaires are saying in the moment. That's how much value they think they're going to get out of these exchanges that they're watching. Yeah, they they think it's a a, a huge big deal, and also this question we've always, we're always interested in, which is something that I think billions has been about from the beginning, is the way in which these people, the way we've noticed these people self mythologizing, that any opportunity they have to tell you the way they see the world, but more importantly the way they see themselves positioned in the world, they will take that opportunity and they will run with it with an eye towards then having you go and repeat that and then having that become the wisdom about who they are. I mean, haven't you noticed whenever we speak to one of these people, they have a way of turning the conversation, kind of whatever you ask them, into a narrative, a foundational narrative that takes you from their beginnings with nothing to their arrival at this moment at the center of the financial world. Yeah. One of my favorite lines in the episode is like a little thing that could seem like a throwaway, but it really distills this thing so much. It's, it's sort of like the most withering thing that Prince can say to Axe. And he says to him, you didn't come in the spirit of the mic. Like this thing named after me, this conference named after me that I created so that I could come and talk to people about my ideas with other people. I can have conversations for the good of all. And, you know, we should all come in this holistic way and better ourselves. And you actually um, showed on the surface that you wanted to gain from it. You didn't come in the spirit of the mic. Well, it's also a way of justifying, which these guys also always do. I say guys advisedly because they're mostly guys, but the way that they justify their actions. So when Prince is saying that, it's when he's fucking acts over and realize, reveals that he's been fucking acts over the whole time, which means he wasn't exactly in the spirit of the mic either. But the way that he's able to justify his actions is by uh, telling acts, well, hey, man, if you would have come in good spirit, everything would have been fine. And so it is part of it. Like whenever these these guys will tell us a story, it always starts with a slight or uh, most often, you know, a guy will say to us, hey, you know, I would have been a workaday grunt only earning a half a million a year, but the guys I was working for, they only would pay me 450. And I said, for that 50 grand, I'm going to leave. And that's how, and I f- fucked them over and I became a billionaire. Like they will always find a way to make Wait themselves- a second. I think I heard Axe say that at the end of season three. We might've taken some of that. We might've taken that, that thing he says to Corbin Burns, and we might've taken that. For it's possible that we took that from a real life, uh, something a real life billionaire said to us. Uh, that's true. So let's go to the categories, I think, unless there's anything else general that you want to say about the episode. Well, I was going to, I was going to seamlessly slide into the category by talking about Adam Perlman and the great job he did understanding these attitudes and putting them into this script that he wrote for this episode. Adam has been with us for four seasons, executive producer of the show, runs a the stalwart, writer, you know, a stalwart of the billions world. Writes great episodes of the show, really captures the voice of the show. But I was thinking, I was trying to think before we even got to the writing of the episode, that I was thinking about the script to screen things that might be, have been different um, originally. But, but also I, I realized in the world today, there was that ruling by the Supreme Court that they were throwing out 
unanimous decision of the Supreme Court, Dave, in one of the most billionsy things. Bridgegate? Throwing throwing out the convictions on Bridgegate because the federal prosecutor in their mind sort of made up charges to go after them. And when I think about Chuck Rhodes and in billions. And, you know, we're so interested in the discretion that prosecutors have. I mean, here's a perfect example where a prosecutor, the the unanimous, you can't say it's Supreme Court ruling that was based on one party or the other. Anytime you have John Roberts and Sonia Sotomayor agreeing, that tells you that it's the law. It's not political. And what they said was, hey, this is prosecutorial overreach. And when you think about the way Chuck is scheming out this season, it's not a bad thing to keep in mind. No, it did feel like a very billions moment. And it feels like, um, it feels like those kind of clouds might be gathering on another prosecution for the, um, that Oxford blues thing, you know, the, the parents who were paying, um, money to stunt their kids into college. It seems like there's been some findings that like the FBI's piece has been a little bit in the entrapment direction and the judge's rulings are starting to go in that direction. I mean, I don't know if it's going to be a full wipeout, but yeah. I mean, it's just fascinating when these big changes occur in, in ways that we like to make happen in a dramatic way on the show. When it's, it's when we look at what the, you know, Chuck, who's now in this episode, realizing that he has to try to do the thing that serves him, but, but without becoming a bad person. And it might seem like, well, of course, a prosecutor could do what they do without being a bad person. But then you look around and and you look at that Bridgegate thing, which is every single person acted atrociously, horribly, evilly, including maybe the prosecutor. Um, and I, I do find it completely fascinating and somehow tracking alongside of billions in the way these people mythologize themselves. But but D, I was gonna I was gonna as a way to do script to screen say that when we put Mohawk Mountain House in the script with Adam. Yeah. This script to screen feels like one that's marked by it's not changing. Yeah. Largely, we were able to keep it the same. But when we wrote that in, everyone said it was impossible. And we have this um, incredible location manager named one of the two crew members we want to shout, shout out on this episode because people don't know. I, I, and I think this is something you and I can add that that I don't even hear in commentaries that often, which is, do you want to talk, Dave, about what the locations department has to do and about Aiden just for a second? Yeah. So Aiden Sleeper is an amazing locations manager. And what we heard when we came up with the idea that we wanted the mic to happen at the Mohonk Mountain House, this venerable, um, prestigious old resort that just felt like the exact right place for this to happen in our show, we heard back immediately that they don't allow shooting there. They never have. They've been asked many times. It's not necessarily a question of how much money a production can pay. They're just not into it. They don't want to inconvenience their guests. They're booked year round. And somehow, you know, one of the things that um, a location manager does is, first of all, he finds the right location. He shows you pictures of it, but he has to then what's called clear the location, which is enter into an agreement with the people who own the place hit a number, hit the conditions, have them sign a contract, basically allowing us to go there. And somehow um, through his personality, he was able to make the place feel comfortable with the way that our production a, would handle a it. Great, a great look. We have two great location managers, Lisa and Aiden. And but what they e- each are able to do and what Aiden did incredibly well on this um, in this episode is... Uh, befriend the people because the money is going to be what the money is going to be. It's not about paying more money. It's about um, understanding and empathizing with the people whose place it was, communicating why it is that we think we'll honor their place by having the event there, how we'll showcase it. And, um, and, and Aiden said to us at the beginning, it's going to be very hard. And we said, we really need it to happen there. If there's any way you can do it. And he did it. And I I thought that was just, um, that was awesome. But one of the things was they didn't close the hotel. And so then Aiden came back to us and said, in the script, we're shooting in about eight different places at Mohonk Mountain House. Is there a way that we can limit it and shoot in three different spots there? And then that's one of the ways that the scripts change, right, Dave? We then went like, yeah, okay, this scene that was going to take place here, we can collapse down and they can be in two different sections of the bar. And then we, our production designer has to help us find a way so that you watching the show don't realize stuff's happening 
maybe in the same room. It's like that famous thing in Goodfellas, you know, that I'm about to ruin something in Goodfellas for you folks. But the famous Steadicam shot of the Copa, they enter the kitchen, they go through the whole kitchen, and then they pop out the door into where the theater is. In fact, there's only one door. They're not really going through anything. It's just they wanted to show off the kitchen. Uh, it's the same door, but they changed what's called a, a flat outside the door so that it looked like you were walking into a different thing. And so m we're always doing that kind of trick as well. I just found that out reading Glenn Kenny's book. His uh, amazing friend, book, Made Men. Yeah, Made, Made Men, which is going to come out about Goodfellas. Um, all right, Dave, you want to talk? Uh, sure, talk about the writing of this episode. Well, you talked about the real life sort of influences behind it. Um, you want to talk about the process? Because the first episode we wrote our, ourselves, you want to talk a little bit about the process, how we work with a writer. And, and I, I think we should talk about how we all together thought through the introduction of Mike Prince. I mean, we met him in the first episode, but I mean, who he really was um, when we're at the fireside chat. Sure. Yeah. Um, so when we're working with uh, the writers in the writer's room, and it's not an episode that we are going to be the, uh, the originating writers on, we have, after a lot of preliminary conversations, we have a series of meetings. I think the first one of those is what we call an arena meeting. Is that what we call it, the arena yeah, meeting, the world yes. meeting? Yeah. Where, where the writer may come to us based on the conversations we've all had in the room and suggest sort of the world of this episode. So in this one, it was very clear. Um, it, it was this idea that we would do this thing called the mic. And this was really going to land Mike Prince. It was going to be an important conference and it, he was going to be the host of it. And it was going to show that he was like a major player in this world and that he could have Axe come to it, even though Axe comes with ulterior motives, that Axe would even come to this guy's event um, automatically would sort of land Prince as this important character. After that's sort of agreed upon in this arena meetings, the writer will go away for a little while and come back. And then he or she will start walking us through um, sort of rough beats. And that could be a document that's given to us, or it could we could just have a conversation about it beforehand. And, you know, we'll give feedback. We'll see what the person has. I'll say when that's in the, and when that process is happening is when then we're really, I think that's when we're all really spitting back and forth and kind of creating the way the episode's going to flow. Because in, in hearing the writer say, well, what if this happens? Very often that'll make one of us go, oh, you know, you know what can happen? And then suddenly all the writers are kind of where we're, we're feeding off it to then really kind of come up with the, the, the flow of, of how the thing is going to. Yeah, absolutely. And this will be, you know, what's happening in the scenes where they're happening potentially. And it really gives like the, the backbone of the story of the episode. We'll also talk about, of course, like what needs to happen emotionally for the characters and how we can make that sort of get on its feet through physical storytelling. Um, yes. After that, the person will come back with a more fleshed out sort of beat sheet that sort of in one line bursts explains the episode. And then um, we move on to the carding process, which is literally these five by seven note cards that have a slug line of where the scene takes place and a couple of words about what's going to be in the scene. And then they'll physically go up on a bulletin board so everybody can look at it. Um, the reason that we do it on cards at this point is because it's easy to move them around. The one thing that's probably not landed upon yet is the idea of the exact order of the story. We may have notions about certain beats, but it's very easy to physically just move the cards around and understand. And you're talking it out loud. You're saying, well, this yeah. could happen, this can happen. And you're, and then it goes from there to a more of a full outline, um, that will reflect the cards. And then in writing the outline, uh, David and I will do it. The writer will do that. Then we'll give them notes. Then we'll often do our own pass through it, uh, where we try and make sure the voice is, is right for the show, especially for writers who are younger on the show, Adam, by this point, four years in, understands the show really well. Um, it's funny, on our show, sometimes there might be a set piece that's got some action in it, but in this episode, the set piece was going to be this big fireside chat between these two characters. And Dave, I mean, we went through many, many, many versions of the scene 
and had to keep trying to drill down on what made Mike Prince Mike Prince. And we knew, I think when we finally, you know, uh, understood how he was tricking acts, we were able to, and understanding why and how he would think of himself, we were able to make the scene between them kind of come to life on, on the page. And I think that we kept working on it almost up until like a week or two before we got there to shoot. Yeah. I mean, this scene was a beast. It was, it was like the first round of, of like an Ali Frazier fight or something where these, we wanted it to feel like these two Titanic figures were feeling each other out. There was, that there was a ton of danger that each was super formidable. We, we had one and a half, two page versions of the scene. We had seven page versions. There was probably a nine page version. Those are unshootable or certainly unplayable at that length on a TV show. I think we ended up uh, around a five ball, which is pretty, pretty beefy. And I think most of it's actually in the cut, yeah, which is we surprising. Didn't, I, remember, I remember at one point uh, when we finally had gotten it, because it was one of these times where you, you, you played a great... Um, you played a great game of ping pong with me because I, I I remember about a week before I was like I think it's good and you go ah eh, take another look through and I was like uh don't you think it's right and you go eh, I think you should take another look through it and then I one night I like rewrote it for a final time because it was my you know we passed it back and forth and it was my turn or whatever and we finally finished it and I remember going driving up there somehow you and I were texting each other and and we had the thought fuck are we gonna like really spend this whole day shooting this thing and it's not quite gonna be all in there, like we're gonna end up cutting it. And I remember watching the first rehearsal of it and turning to him, being like, "Dude, I think I think we got this thing in at the last minute. Like, I think it's gonna live in its entirety." And um, yeah, usually and- if it's a super long scene like that, you're standing there and you're you're pretty sure that some of this is gonna come out in yeah. the editing room. Yeah. And and in this one, it was like, well, you know what? Probably some of this is gonna come out, but it's kind of hard to see what right now. Usually, it announces itself, and you can maybe even cut it on the day, but it all pretty much stuck. Even the shot of, you know, the uh, hounds at Mike Prince's feet. Oh, Somehow that even Yeah, stayed. let's give a little shout out to Lee Tamahori. Yeah. You, are, are we getting into shooting the episode now? Well, we're uh, unless we want to be uh, make this uh, podcast as long as that conversation would have been in real the life. Decalogue? I think we should. Yeah, let's do it. Well, because Lee, I mean, really had, a, had the dogs in his mind's eye, didn't he? Yes, the great Lee Tamahori directed this episode he was a guy that we've wanted to work with for 30 years since we saw Once Were Warriors and were, yeah. were utterly rocked by that movie. Um, you know, we, we followed his career. He, we tracked some other amazing movies he made, like, like The Edge. And um, we found out that he was a fan of the show a couple seasons ago. And then we found out that he was actually open to the idea of coming to direct episodes. And we were freaking out with excitement only to find that he needed a work visa and that it was going to take months and months and it blew through the entire season. He was supposed to come work on the show in just a bureaucratic uh, gridlock and he couldn't come do it. And we thought that it would probably throw off the timing and he would go and move on to something and we'd never hit him again. And then suddenly we heard that it had come through and that he was amenable to coming. And it was so exciting. Well, yeah. And, and, and it was so rewarding too, because he's a soft-spoken man. He's you know, 15 or 20 years older than we are. He's got four times the energy that I do. He knows how to conserve his energy. Uh, he's seen the world, incredibly worldly person, but he's also an actor whisperer. And to a person, every actor came up to me and you at some point in this and said, this guy's a genius. Yeah, they this is amazing. Him. Yeah. But but there were also things like when he said to us, remember, in his calm way, He's a real movie director, so he knows how to say, um, it's perfect, I'd shoot it as it is. <laughs> Guys, I wouldn't, change a, I wouldn't change a line. And then he'd be like, have you considered the way you could use the dogs? You know, and and because and, uh, we'd had the dogs on the plane or whatever, but then Lee said the dog should be there at the, um, at the, at Prince's feet during the event. And um, he has this very subtle way of staging, an incredible way of talking to the actors. And um, yeah, I uh, I hope he's able to come back and do many more episodes of Billions with us because what a joy it was to work with that guy. He also really helped us on the chess scene in terms of expanding it. I think in our minds, it was going to be um, 
sort of a tighter sequence. And 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 he had this notion. It was his idea that Taylor should know. Uh, it's very rare that a director comes up with a, a little story button. Well, it's 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 rare, right? Because um, on our show, for the most part, the directors are visiting. Some of them come back time after time, but they're not living with it. We live with it all the time. So it's natural that the bulk of that kind of thinking is done by us. But this guy came and visited and somehow got so deeply inside it that he was, he suggested that Taylor actually be ahead of, of, um, Oscar Langstrat in the chess game, the literal chess game. Yeah. He said, wouldn't it be fun if Taylor was clocking it and, and we gave Taylor a last little line Now he didn't try to write the line, but he's the last little line where Taylor's able to give a dig at Longstrat, what Longstrat, Mike Birbiglia, Longstrat should have done in the chess game. And, um, I mean, Dave, you and I are very good at parrying ideas that come from the outside that we don't think are good. And I remember hearing his idea and, 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 you know, because I respect that dude so much, I so didn't want to have to say no to a bunch of ideas. And he only had one or two that were like this kind of, thing. and they were both, they were excellent. And it was like, oh, that's great, Lee. Thank you. Uh, it was really yes. lovely. And that was, as you were saying earlier, his, his vision for the sequence was actually more expansive than ours. We thought that, um, we would have the chess master at one board and that people would be taking turns playing games. Like they would sit down, play their game. And as they lost, the next person would go. And he said, well, I've seen these, these rapid chess players, these blitz players, you know, play like many, many boards at the same time. So, you know, we came up with this idea that he was going to be playing like nine different opponents moving around the room, quickly making his moves. And, and it's, you know, it just so happened to, uh, turn out that um, Hikaru Nakamura, our grandmaster came to be in this and, and portray himself is a blitz master. So he was able to go table to table and think for literally one second and make a brilliant move while the other person wrestled with it. This is a good moment to shout out our other crew superstar of the podcast, uh, which is Alexis Weiss, who uh, she is the best prop master I've ever been around. Uh, we began working with Alexis on our movie Solitary Man in 2009. And anytime we've been able to, we've tried to work with Alexis since. She's well, you should on. lay out a few of the uh, highlights of what the, the prop master does. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, everything an actor touches and uses in a scene is a prop that a uh, prop master is responsible for. So including like even the wardrobe, you would think a watch is wardrobe. If, it, if an actor messes around with a watch, that's a prop or uh, food on a show is a prop. The chess pieces are props. The chess boards uh, uh, that you're using are, are props. The cars are under the, the cars prop yeah. in New York are under the, the prop master. In fact, the airplane is under the prop master in this episode. So you're watching this episode. You're not thinking about the fact that this woman, one person, she has a department that she runs, but it all falls upon her, has to secure the right kind of seaplane and also has to secure the right kind of chess pieces and has to be responsible for reset with the chess master for resetting those pieces. And then the food that's prepared by our dear friends, the legends, Sean and Missy. Uh, so Sean and Missy brought the food they own, they're the owner operators of uh, Lilia and Missy. They brought the food, but that also is Alexis's responsibility. The prop master is responsible for either cooking all the food you ever see, or if it's a, on the show, or if a master chef is come, or for sourcing the food, or if we're going to have masterful restaurateurs, then Alexis is responsible for figuring out the amounts with them, right, Dave? Uh, and uh, so Alexis is sitting there with Sean Feeney and Missy Robbins talking through, well, there are this many resets that are going to have to happen. We're going to have to have, you know, 200 bowls of pasta six times during the night. And Alexis also has to work with a budget and, and find a way to buy all that stuff and, and make it work. Yeah. And in the case of this episode is the thing that, that puts you in mind of this had to reset every chessboard after every take make sure yes. that they were starting in the proper place. Um, because, you know, viewers have eagle eyes and chess experts would be watching and notice if something was wrong. So it had to be right every time. That, uh, that is correct. And, and the prop master also has to sort of serve the director's needs, the production designer's needs, the showrunner's needs in terms of 
satisfying the, the, the creative demands of each of these people while managing the budgetary demands of the production side, the physical production side. It's a very hard job. Alexa, brilliant yeah. person. And one of the best things, one of the best ways that she goes about doing her job is, you know, sometimes a specific prop or brand name will be written into a script, but oftentimes they're not. And she will look at the script and understand the story we're telling and from her department, help tell that story by figuring out the right items. If somebody's coffee machine is mentioned in the scene, if it's Spiro, she'll work with him to get like the exactly right, you know, rocket evolutione, whatever Italian <laughs> thing. And if there's a different vibe being portrayed in another scene, the bonomatic could potentially be placed by her. She she understands the the tone that different pieces of material lend to the storytelling, and and she's helping tell that story. Yeah, I I never want to go into battle without Alexis Weiss. That's for sure. I, a couple times we've had to. Uh, I have uh, I've done everything in my power to convince her to come back and do more with us. Um, and so, hey, Alexis, whenever we decide that we're all able to make season six, we're counting on you being there with us. Um, all right, Dave, what else should we hit here? Let's, oh, there are a couple of, listen, uh, we can't possibly talk about this episode without talking about uh, keep your eye on the sparrow. <laughs> you want to get into the references? This one is chock full of references. Yeah, like, well, so, yeah, so keep your eye on the sparrow. Um, coming out of the great theme song for the old um, detective show Beretta, sung by Sammy Davis Jr. So Beretta is like the uh, er private eye show for people our age, idiot guys like us. When we were little boys, our dads would let us stay up late and watch the show Beretta. Uh, and uh, we were, I still to this day don't know if I kept meaning to tell Damien what the line meant. Oh, I think on the day we did. We told him yeah, right we told before him. shooting. Yeah, we, we were standing sure outside. Uh-huh. And he was like, oh, good. Thanks, guys. I knew it was, I figured it was some kind of reference. Uh, yeah, he looks all that shit up, but that was a late ad. I, if you remember, we put that in a draft right at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, one of us did that to make the other guy uh, laugh and succeeded. Successfully, uh, yeah. Successfully and made then the other guy. The, the next one that, that hits me is um, the Bonnie and it's a twofer in one line. She says about Dollar Bill that he's going from fuck it, let's do it live, which is a great Bill O'Reilly, like hot mic outtake reference that people have seen on the internet, which is hilarious. And uh, shows the true anger deep inside Bill O'Reilly or, or he, he swings the goodnight Saigon, the moving, Billy Joel tribute to the Vietnam soldiers. I mean, I think, you know, that's a corker right there. That's an Adam, Adam Perlman who wrote the episode came up with those. And I'll say it's very hard to get up. Uh, most of the references in billions come from the two of us, but those, those two, I mean, I, the sparrow came from us, but those two brilliant ones. I remember reading the script, his, Adam's first draft and just howling at uh, those lines, just brilliant work on Perlman's part. Uh, knowing, uh, what what's going to slide by our, our, the two of us and make us uh, laugh. And then Dave, I think I tried for at least three different projects I can think of over the last six, seven years to get a Dudamel reference in a script. And it finally happened here. And I think you might've been the one to put it in. I think that um, we've tried other episodes of Billions too, and it never quite stuck. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm going to blame myself. I mean, I'm, it's mostly been me insisting, but I do think you then in the thing you talk about, which is one of us will throw a reference in for the other person. I, I think you might've been the one to put it in here. I, I don't think I want to take credit for that. I, I don't have that memory of writing the full. Then it was, well, then it was, then it was it certainly might have been me. You, I don't know. Maybe Adam took up the mantle. It, I, I, it's, I know that I try, I mean, you know, I've tried to jam that in a bunch of scripts. So. Okay. Well, you jammed it in here. It finally got through, but then I couldn't, I was like, oh, can I take either credit or blame for it? What are the, are there other ones that it's chock-a-block? Yeah. Well, we got an Ed Kemper reference because oh, yeah, early, early one. in our writer's room of this, we were um, watching uh, Mindhunter. We were binging it, loving that show. And we found a way to jam that in. 
there is a, a Theogenes reference who is this great gladiator from Greek times. And I think we first became aware of him from Tom Jones's great story, The Pugilist at Rest. Yes. Which everybody should go read. It's amazing. Um, yeah, the Theogenes thing was in from the outline on, I believe. And, you know, the, the title of the episode is one of these, The Chris Rock Test. Absolutely. Um, we spell it out in a way, but uh, yeah, that name was on the board from the beginning that we were going to call an episode that we realized that some, one of these episodes, Wags was going to find out his his daughter uh, was was a stripper. Yeah. And, you know, since that bit has been performed, I think the world's changed. And if um, a, a person, man, woman, totally. any gender wants to pursue a career as a dancer, a stripper, an exotic dancer, a burlesque dancer, whatever you want to call it, then um, that's something that they should claim and do it proudly. But in this case, in the old fashioned way of Wags looking at it, the way that Chris Rock was talking about it those years ago, you know, this wasn't the uh, plan that he had in mind for his daughter, who he still sees as a little girl, you know, wrongly. It's all a commentary on his fatherhood, but uh, it was a shock for him. All right, D, there are a couple other things that I want to get to here before we wrap it up because we've, uh, we're in danger of going long. Let's run, oh, let's run um, guest cast because there's a lot of amazing uh, guest cast. Yeah, do it. That's what I wanted to do too. Go, you can start. Well, Roma Mafia is in this episode as Marianne Graham. She's incredible. Mike Berbiglia is back as Oscar Langstrad. It's amazing. Sean Feeney and Missy Robbins playing themselves as the vaunted restaurateurs that they are. Um, another great one, Polly Draper playing Senator Marsha Vandeveer, a character that's been teased in dialogue since season one, but has never appeared. Well, I want to talk about Rob, but I love that you're bringing up, I love that you're bringing up for Biggs and Roma because those are two different great examples of the way things happen in Billions. One of my favorite things that ever happens in the process of this, people always ask about auditions. And I often say when people audition, it's, it's, uh, it's not really that rational a process. Once in a while, someone will come in and Roma Mafia was not what we had necessarily in mind for that character. It was, but Roma Mafia came in and read for us. And the instant she started, you and I looked at each other. We read, we didn't want to read anybody else. Like we finished the day, but the second she walked out, I remember us turning to our casting director, Allison, and saying, well, that's that part. That's yeah. done. She took uh, the part. I mean, she, she was tough and no nonsense, yet funny and entertaining and idiosyncratic. And it was just like, well, this is delightful. And I just remember having the thought that Giamatti in particular would love working with her. I was like, he'll love working with her. And it was just a no-brainer. She was so prepared and so alive and alert. And what a joy Roma Mafia is to work with. And then the other side of the thing is, Berbiglia, who's a dear friend, someone I speak to almost, uh, you know, I speak to a few times a week, but we wrote that part for Mike together. Uh, we thought of that part a couple of years ago and wrote it for him. And that was an example of, I remember the two of us calling Mike and saying, we have this idea. What do you think? He had come and watched the pilot and loved it. Um, and then he said, okay, uh, I'm, I'm going to watch a bunch of episodes. Remember he binged the show, called us the next day and said, all right, let's do it. Um, which was great. And then at some point, I really do want to talk a lot about Rob Morrow because- well, he's not going to be a one, he's not like a guest cast one episode mention kind of person because he's so, even though he's a guest star in the show, he's baked into the fabric of this thing. He is, as Berbiglia is now too, but um, Morrow's been in every single season of the show. And it'd be hard for me to overstate the impact quiz shows had on the two of us, David. It's one of our favorite movies, one of our most quoted movies. And uh, Rob, in this episode, the scene on the couch, I... What I, I I love is, look, Rob Morrow's been number one on the call sheet of three different television shows. He's an incredible television star, really, and a movie star. But sometimes when people come in and they do guest star work or like you see, they're part of a cast, they don't always, they don't always want to showcase the thing that's their brand. But Morrow, on the couch, sitting there with Giamatti, he gave us everything that Rob Morrow, he gave us the Rob Morrow magic. I mean, he's laughing, listening to Chuck. I'll tell you, I can watch it over and over and over again. I find 
that look in his eye, he has that thing that the great movie stars and TV stars have. You just want to, you're drawn closer. You, you want to be amused by what's amusing him. And uh, he's a great actor and has been a great collaborator for us on the show. Yeah, so well said. I mean, in that scene, he brings the depth and the profundity. He brings the the verbal skills, the acuity yes. there. And, and he also brings the humor. He's willing to give us the smile and the laugh and the twinkle in the eye. It's, it's everything you want. It, it truly is. In and, one and great package. On that note, we should bring Corey Stoll in. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I just wanted to make sure you were listening to podcasts on Spotify. Here's how you do it. First, search for your favorite podcast on Spotify's app. They have a library of over 750,000 pods at this point. So let's say you're searching for the Rewatchables or the Dave Chang Show or the Ringer NBA Show. Once you find them, click on the follow button. That's how you subscribe. Then click on those letters near the top of the app that say podcasts. All the pods you're following will pop up separated by episodes, downloads, and shows. Wait, it gets better. On Spotify, you can adjust the speed of the pods to seven different speeds. 0.5 times is the slowest. I actually sound drunk at 0.5. You could do 0.8 times, 1.2 times, which is my favorite. Everyone sounds like they just had a good cup of coffee. And then there's 1.5 times, two times. And if you're completely insane, three times. Anyway, Spotify's app connects directly to many of the best automobiles in the world. It even has a CarPlay feature. That's pretty cool. Best of all, it's free. Download Spotify on any device and you're good to go. Should you be embarrassed that you're not listening to podcasts on Spotify? Well, I don't want to app shame you, but the answer, unfortunately, is yes. Make the move. Listen to podcasts on Spotify. Back to yours. All right, Dave, this is, uh, for me, the most exciting moment of the podcast, even though I've loved spending this time with you, of course. But uh, we are bringing in Michael Thomas Aquinas Prince himself, the great Corey Stahl. Corey, thanks for hanging out with us, man. My pleasure. How's uh, the quarantine going, man? You know, I uh, I can't complain. Uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, it's definitely a challenge, but um, um, I, it's I'm so so grateful for, for 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 what I what I do have and the, and the family and the support that I that I have. Um, totally understandable. Yeah. Also, um, uh, something I could see Mike Prince saying. <laughs> yeah, you, maybe he will in a future episode. Right, right. Yeah, I could totally see Prince uh saying that. Uh I know you mean it and uh, I think Mike Prince means it too. Uh Yeah. No, well, like, look, I mean that that comes from an urge to be like, how am I doing? I'm fucking freaking out. This back attack. Um but obviously nobody yes. wants to hear that. And it doesn't help me. So, uh That's true. It doesn't help. No, that's totally true, man. It doesn't help. I I I agree and we are all um, incredibly fortunate. Dave, I have a spot I want to start with, um, which is, Corey, whenever we tell the foundational story of it, when the two of us knew we like had to work with you, it goes back to a table mm. read of a movie we're not going to name. But I've always wanted to know, did you know that day that you'd connected in some way that like you'd made an impression on people? No, no, not, not at all. I mean, it was it was really that. fun. Um it was a funny, it was a weird sort of thing when you're uh, doing a reading of a movie that you know that you're not cast in. So it was just sort of like a lark, you know, it was sort of, uh, you know, in LA, especially where I was in my career at the time, I was uh, sort of spottily uh, employed. And so uh, it was nice to sort of go in and get to do my thing without the pressure of it being an audition. Um, so I, it was sort of like a blast and I did it and I forgot about it. Well, that's great. I mean, for us, that was the high point of the process of that entire movie. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, it, as we said before, it started a long sort of wish on our part that we could work together. And it's amazing that it's finally happening. Yeah. I mean, when, when was that? That must've been like 2010? No, maybe 12. I think yeah. 12, I was trying to put it together. Okay. I think twelve because I think we shot in in thirteen. But I'm 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 interested in this, and I think people listening will be interested in this too. Which is when an actor goes in for something like that. So what that was was there was a movie that was going to get made. The head of the uh, movie studio wanted to hear the script aloud. Some of the actors who were in the movie were there. 
the director was there, the writers were there, but at least one of the movie stars was not there. And you got the call to play his role, which was a central role in the movie, you know, one of the two above the poster roles. When you go in for something like that, is your mind, it's a lark, I got that, but is your mindset also like, well, I'm going to prepare and try to nail this thing? Or is it a total, you know what I'm saying? Like, are you aware, even if you didn't know, hey, I'm, I, I made an impression like, hey, I'm trying to come in and put my thing down in a way. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, part of that is, you know, networking and career development. And, you know, you just, you always want to leave a a good impression. Um, But I would say even more than that is just, um, you you know, it it, it takes so much often to get a a project off the ground that, uh, you know, you, the, the joy of being able to play a full role yeah. in, you know, in a couple hours sitting is, uh, you know, that, that, that's a, that's a, that's a fun thing to do. It's you get to go to the gym, uh, as an actor and, and, and do your thing. You know, we can't, you know, actors can't, you know, we're not jazz musicians. We can't just like go and, you know, play a set with somebody just, um, we can't just go paint by ourselves. Um, you know, so, this is often readings are the, the the closest thing to to doing that. Oh, that's fascinating! So it's like a way to get reps in almost and get mm-hmm. uh, you, you know Maggie when when Maggie Sif was your dear friend when we told her we were interested in bringing you in she was so excited you were going to be on on the show with us that it was possible. She describes you as as uh, as fearless as one of your great mm. attributes. Do you, does that? Does that track for you? Do you consider, because I would think coming into this kind of an environment, mm-hmm. both the table read we were talking about and showing up on a show that's been going and successful for a bunch of years, some might have trepidation, but you seem to jump in without much. Uh, it's funny. I mean, no, I'm not fearless. They do. That's the, that's, that's definitely the headline. Um, uh, I've, I've, I've got plenty of, insecurities uh um but often my biggest fear is um is that i held back uh-huh you know what i mean like if i yes. uh, uh, uh and, and i in fact uh, you know i can i can you know say publicly i mean i i came to you guys after we shot the first episode and i it was because i felt i i had held back and 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 um and that's the the last thing I want to do because what's the point you, you you know and and I and and it was a great talk and I feel like uh it sort of gave me the uh the, the permission and the encouragement to to go for it um, well that's great I remember in this in this episode you know this week's episode five oh two you know even though there's shots of you on your way to the mic it's when you bound up onto that porch and you mm-hmm. start saying how you're going to, you know, we're all going to be better in 24 hours. And there was that line, let's, let's kick some butt together. And that was like a big moment. You were like, I, I don't want to hold back. And we were like, go for it. Let's go, you know, and we can decide if, if that's the version of it that we want to go with. But there was like this great gusto with this guy going like, let's kick some butt together. It's such a sentiment that probably none of us on this, on this <laughs> podcast and maybe nobody in, in Brooklyn and New York and the tri-state area would really say um, without protecting themselves somehow. <laughs> but Mike Prince is that kind of character and you went for it and it was amazing. Yeah, when I think, I think what, you know, with the fear for that is that this character who, you know, we're, we're sort of promising the audience you're going to see more of this guy. Uh, I don't want to make him uh, unappealing or uh, you know, sort of foolish. Um, and I, I, I think it, that, you know, that the conversation that we all had sort of gave me the courage to realize that the, the audience can really forgive that because the, the audience is, is they want to see vibrant, flawed characters. Yeah. That's the whole thing about the show. Right. And, and yeah, I, I remember, I remember two things related to this, Dave, I agree a hundred percent. Cause I remember walking up to you 
and asking you if you wanted one to kind of cover yourself because of that conversation on that doc. I remember going up to you and being like, hey, dude, do you want to do one that's for yourself so that we, and you go, let's just do, we did it. Let's just do it at Corey. You were very like at that point you'd owned it and you were like, no, 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 that's who this guy is. And we, Dave and I loved that, you know? Um, but I also remember there was a moment because I wanted to ask you about locking in to the character. And there was a moment in 502, we were up at, um, up at that hotel and we had filmed some of the scene. We'd rehearsed the scene with the two of you up doing the conference at the mic, you know, doing the, the, the dinner conversation, fireside chat. And you were standing under these, this stairway and I walked up to you and I said, how you feeling? And, and you just looked up to me, you had your headphones and you just went, or your iPod, but you went, I got it. And it was great. <laughs> and I remember you go, I got it. We're good. And I remember walking away feeling like, oh, that's fucking great. Did it, do you remember it sort of like locking in for you in a certain way when you were, when you were up there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that, that whole period where we were filming up in, in Mohawk, uh, was yeah. intense because you know, I mean, we were. I was. I was. I, I was playing Macbeth, and so it was. Like, you know, did my last show Sunday night, <laughs> drove up in the crazy snowstorm, and then early the next morning, uh, uh, we filmed like twelve pages or something, and then yeah. went. You know, and then and then filmed another. You know, filmed another day, and then drove back and did a show, and then came back the next day and filmed, um, which was daunting, but. Uh, there was something kind of great about that challenge, about how sort of nuts it, it all was. Um, oh yeah! In some ways, the, the craziness and the and 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 the, the high degree of difficulty involved with that made it in some ways easier to play this character who is so alpha and uh, and so so on him on on the balls of his feet. You know, he's never on his heels. Um, yes. and so, you know, the, 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 the exhaustion and the sort of crazy whiplash of going, you know, back and forth between stage and this, and, um, sort of, I think helps, helps feed the, the, the idea of that character. And, you know, a lot of the characters on the show are, are, are on the, the balls of their feet. They're really about moving forward, uh, and going on to the next challenge. And, uh, I think those two things fed each other. Yeah. That's an amazing read right there because, uh, not to generalize, but if you look at self-made billionaires, they generally didn't get there because they were like rocking back on their heels, wondering what was going to happen next. You know, they bring the action, they dictate it. And that that's a great way to like put it in a physical context. Yeah, I, I agree. And I remember also when you were sitting in our office and we'd had that stealth meeting where we, none of us said what was really on our minds. We were all sort of saying like, well, maybe there's a small part, you know, a good small part for you to play. And then we had a second meeting where we were like, hey, we want you to take this huge role. And you said, yeah, I was hoping you guys were going to call and say that. And we all knew what was really, you know, we all knew the conversation. But I remember looking, I, I remember for some reason I had, we, um, we had that whiteboard in our office that kind of had schedule on it. And, and I remember saying mm -hmm. to you, dude, you're doing Macbeth. Are you ready to really do this? And, like, and, and, I remember you taking a deep breath and saying like, yes, I will do this. And I will. And, and Dave, when you left, Dave and I looked at each other, like, fuck, we really want this guy on the show. Can anyone really do what he says he's going to be able to do? And we were like, ah, let's fucking ride with him. Let's see, you know, because we, and, and you totally did. You, you completely came through. I'm wondering if you had any, um, well, I guess I'm wondering like, what's the mindset you have about coming into a show that's already working and in a major role, mm. you know, not, not coming in, Hey, I'm going to do two episodes, but like, Hey, you know, I'm going to come in here and beep up, you know, you ended up on the poster for this year. Right. And so, which Dave and I thought was really possible. Like that was our intention. And, uh, you know, because you have to not only find the character, you have to find the tone of the character and then the tone of the whole piece kind of like you have to somehow as a runner would in a, one of those marathon leading groups kind of run in pace with the, or in reaction to everybody. And I'm just wondering yeah. about your mindset uh, when it, when it comes to that, how you think about it. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, it was both a, a, a big challenge and uh, an incredible asset, um, you know, to be able to have a show that already has established its tone and everybody around me was 
you know, it, in top form, knew that knows their characters, knows how to speak your dialogue, and you know has a high degree of relaxation within that. So there, there. So I'm surrounded by great role models. You know, I can see, I can see what Damien's doing. I can see what Paul's doing. I can see what Maggie's doing. Um, and I can see how comfortable they are. Now it's impossible for me to jump into being that comfortable sure. immediately in that. You know what I mean? Because it's just, of course, I'm just not there yet. Um, and so a certain degree is just about psyching myself up and just faking it till I make it. And, and, and luckily I'm playing a character who is supremely confident. So you just sort of yes. will yourself to do that. Like I know inside that I'm not this confident. I know that I'm not Mike Prince, but Mike Prince wouldn't be daunted by this. Correct. Um, and yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's funny. I feel like we're just sort of, getting our momentum going uh, when, when we have to take a pause. But, but definitely even the, the, the arc of those seven oh, yeah. episodes that we, that we filmed, I felt that I was sort of, you know, getting into the rhythm. Of the rest of the well, yeah. And I, well, I mean, for me, I, I love, and Dave, I know you feel the same way. Like sometimes when you're in our role to our job too, you know, we just, it's not only that you had to fit in, but then you and Daniel Breaker who plays Scooter, you guys had to seem like in your own world, you were Axe and Wags and had been doing this together right. for years. And yeah, then it yeah, just, yeah. Um, luckily, it's magic. I mean, I, I don't know how many episodes you've watched, but I mean, it is a magical thing, the two of you guys together. And it does really feel like it. And I felt like that, as that started to happen and, and as the show kept going, we started writing to it more. That combination also helps me feel like, oh, this guy's got a real world. It kind of expands mm. the whole thing. Do mm. you feel that too? Does that make Absolutely. sense? Absolutely. No, Dan Daniel Breaker is is a miracle. Um, you know, yes. I, mean, I feel like he actually he he managed what I he managed in on the first day of filming what I feel like it took me a few episodes or at least a couple episodes to sort of get to. He was he was right there and he and and Costable were this like beautiful uh you know Waldorf and Statler sort of combo um, yes. like they had been that way for years and so uh I, I feel like I feel like I learned a lot from watching Daniel even though he was sort of coming in from the same place as me and you guys um, when we were shooting up at Mohonk you were going back and forth with him right he was going to do Hamilton at the same exactly. Time. Amazing. Exactly. So I mean, that we was some shuttle going place. from New Paltz back to New York. That was important. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. If that if that uh, if that car broke down, then uh, there'd be a lot of unhappy theater goers in New York. Yeah. Hey, I I have a, a just a couple more things before we let you let you go, and then if there's anything you wanted to bring up about the show, we're happy to. I, but I, I'm I'm curious. You know, we have these gangs on the show of like the Yale drama people, the NYU drama people, the Juilliard people, and I've had combos with everyone, and everyone will defend their the even though people yeah. act like well, it's all a thing, but everyone's very loyal, has a lot of loyalty, turf loyalty. But when you're in yeah, the yeah, scenes, yeah. do you feel it? Can you really tell the difference in a way between a Yale actor and a Juilliard actor? An NYU, you know, you're an um, NYU person. I'm an NYU person. So that's Costable and uh, and Maggie and who else? Glad uh, and Flesh and Fleshler. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody else. Uh, and Paul is is Yale. Paul, Paul's Yale. Kunkin is uh, Juilliard. Right. Kunkin and, and Daniel Breaker are Juilliard. They're Juilliard, yeah. Um, you know, there are sort of like, gross stereotypes of 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 what the, you know what those actors are i i feel like that i i feel like it doesn't usually hold up no right. i mean yes I, I at least with with this particular group of actors i don't think it actually holds up i feel like it's a sort of a it's a billions group of actors. <laughs> right. Everybody's doing uh, this thing. No, it's true. It's true. Um, it was, and especially thing. and especially because i think the the tone and the and the degree of difficulty of your dialogue is 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 such that it 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 pulls actors towards that it's heightened it's very specific it's there's a velocity to it um 
And so if somebody was want to, uh, to, to be very methody and mumble core, um, they wouldn't work with the show anyway. Um, I'm not going to yes. say which school that mumble no, I, is. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, do, do, do you know what yes, I mean? Like, I, uh, totally. I mean, I, I, I personally feel like, as an NYU person, um, I think the advantage of NYU is that it, I feel like there, there is at least you know traditionally there's been less of a sort of a, a dogma. Um, and and less of a of a of a sense of this is how you act. It's about a sort of a tool bag, and you know, for, depending on the project, you pull from that tool, and uh, you 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 meet the material. Um, and so, in, in that sense, I think you know, billions as well suited for a for an NYU actor. Yeah, well, well answered, Dave. Do you have anything yeah, final for very for well Corey? answered? It seems like we're in danger of one of those newsroom. Um, rumbles breaking out like in um, Anchorman <laughs> with Ron Burgundy. <laughs> I always feel it's possible because once in a while when the NYU actors get together, they will rag on the other groups. I've noticed it mm -hmm. more. It goes that way usually. It is usually like NYU actors will go like, huh, Juilliard. So Juilliard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll hear the, that the, sometimes. The pretty, the, 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 the pretty ones. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Oh, no, with their great yeah. voices. No. Oh, those Juilliard exactly. actors with their great voices. You will just hear <laughs> yeah. that shit sometimes from the NYU. Well, and I think, and I think, and I think the NYU. I think I, I wouldn't call it a. Uh, I wouldn't call it insecurity, or, or but but I do feel like we do have a certain sort of bad news bears sort of quality. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you go to the theaters <laughs> at Juilliard or Yale, they're these gorgeous state of the art, you know, theaters with all the lighting equipment and beautiful uh upholstered chairs and we are really in we're we're just stuck in some corner um <laughs> you know it's 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 really it's really uh um they give us the dregs oh um, yeah the downtrodden you know. nyu program yeah, yeah. and so it's and so i think there is this pride that we're you know this sort of gatowski you know, poor theater where we can, you know, make a theater with just, uh, 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 you know, just a bare stage and, and some, some, some. I love that. I got the, you know. I got the full Barton Fink out of you. This was yeah. so worth asking a question. <laughs> I did. I got like the full Barton Fink. It, ours is a theater for the working man of the working man for the yeah, working yeah. man. It's fantastic. Yeah. Dave, you got anything for Corey before we split? No, nah, I think that's a great one to end it on. Um, I mean, I could ask you about all these great directors you've been working with, but maybe we'll just do that when we're back on set together. Hey, yeah, Corey, man, and in, in, in all seriousness, uh, what an amazing thing you brought to the show. We, we just, uh, you, you know, you come up with a character, like I, I, I always try to explain this to people that yet these characters live in Dave, in my imagination, we kind of come up with the, with, with the text, um, but then it really takes an actor to come and it's the mixture of what we do and what you do that makes this thing become alive and a real thing. And from, you know, I know you felt like, oh, you, you know, we said to you, you got it on that first scene and it's clear from the show and the way people reacted to it on episode one, you did have it, even if you were holding back a tiny bit. But, uh, but Mike Prince lives and breathes because of what you came and, and, and ha have brought. And uh, we hope to be able to write for your character for a long time. So thanks for doing it, man. Oh, please, please. My pleasure. It's, it's so much fun. And, uh, I can't, I can't wait till, uh, till it's safe yeah. for us to, <laughs> to get back to work. All of us can't wait. All right. Thanks, Corey Stoll. So, Hey David, it was great getting to talk to Corey. Uh, but I, I think we, we have to leave this episode on a little bit more of a somber note, which is that, um, the great Mark Blum, who played Dr. Rutenberg on the show, and, and, and for whom we had real plans uh, to keep going. In fact, he was at a table read um, before everything got shut down to be in a future episode of the show. He passed away from, from COVID-19. Do you want to talk about Mark a little bit? Yeah. Mark Blum, an actor who we've watched, a legendary actor. We've, we've watched him for decades. He came in and read for... Um, Chuck's therapist. And it was one of those one read things like, no, you don't need to do another take. We wish we would have shot it. We wish we would have aired it. It was so perfect. 
He came to play um, Dr. Rutenberg. He crushed it. We had huge plans for his character to stay with Chuck throughout the season, throughout the season, throughout the series, probably. He immediately became part of the Billions family. We loved him. He was a gentleman. We did not get to know him as well as we wanted to because sadly, um, he was an early casualty of the coronavirus. It was a shocking loss and we're, we're so sad for his family and all of the fans that have watched him for all this time and, and really our viewers and our cast and crew who, who only got to work with him for a short time. I agree totally, David. Um, and it's, a, it's an incredible loss to the theater community and the acting community um, in New York. I was blown away by the sort of um, incredible things people wrote and said about him in as he got sick and, and when he died, like the amount of texts I got from people on the show and not on the show, but who knew he was in it, who, who, who all said like, oh, Mark Blum was everything to me. He was the, he's the consummate New York actor. And so, um, so we dedicated the episode to him and, um, you know, uh, there's not much to say after that other than, um, hug the people close to you and virtually hug the people who you love and who are far away. And we will be here next week to talk about episode three, uh, behind the billions. You can, as I said, find David at David Levine on Twitter, me at Brian Koppelman. And, uh, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. 